0: The first Bible passage that we'll be reading this morning is taken from 2 Timothy 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we'll be reading the first eight verses together. And you'll be able to find that on page 1368 of your Pew Bible, page 1368. 2 Timothy 4, the verses 1 to 8. Paul has just been given much direction to his protege, Timothy. And after that, he writes, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure Is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So far. The next passage we'll be reading is taken from Hebrews. And that's only a few pages further. Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll be reading the first three verses of that. So you'll be able to find that on page 1383 of your pew Bible. Therefore, we also... For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. So far. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, have you ever run in a race? I know that many of you young people just finished track season, so you might have run in track and field, maybe short distances, 100 meter dash, or maybe you ran longer distances. For the rest of you, maybe it was high school that it was the last time that you ran. Or maybe even just in the schoolyard with friends. For some of you, you might even have competed at a college level or higher. If you have, do you remember about the three-quarter mark of the race? Often people start out races very strong. Even if you just watched a race on TV, you'll recognize that. The gun goes off and they start sprinting in order to find their position in line. Then they settle in and they establish their pace for the long haul. But it's once they reach about the three-quarter mark, maybe 300 meters in of a 400-meter race, 600 of an 800... Their energy starts to flag. They're not running with the same energy that they put into it from the beginning. In fact, at this point, some of you may have remembered thinking, why did I even sign up for this in the first place? Knowing that, lots of coaches will even position themselves close to the end of that kind of race. One, two, or 300 meters before the finish line, they'll shout almost done give it all you've got run 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 and that gives you the encouragement you need that gives you the boost necessary to access that final kick and maybe even to end your race with a sprint and what a good feeling it is to cross that finish line knowing that you gave all you got The author of the book of Hebrews compares our faith life to a race. He is writing this letter specifically for the Hebrews, Jews that had converted to Christianity around the Roman Empire. They had left everything behind to become Christians, and many had embraced Christianity eagerly and with lots of energy. But as the years went on, life wasn't particularly easy for them. They had run the race. But they were beginning to slow down. We read in chapter 13 that people among them had been imprisoned. In chapter 10 of Hebrews, we learn that some of them had their property plundered. People stole things from them just because they were Christians. How fair was that? In light of that, it becomes understandable that some of them would begin to get discouraged. And so the author of Hebrews encourages them. You're in a race, he says, and you need that final kick. But the end is in sight. And so he begins to cheer them on as they come to the end. And so we'll see that in our theme for today. Run the race of faith. And we'll see, first of all, remember those who ran before. Remove hindrances, run the race, and refocus your faith. The first word that the author to Hebrews uses in this particular passage is therefore, or for this reason. A handy rule when running across this particular word is to ask the question, what's it there for? In our case, it points us back to the passage that came right before us. That is, the heroes of the faith, otherwise known as the great hall of faith that we find in chapter 11. So, what's the point of chapter 11? Many people, when only taking a quick glance through it and looking at the popular name it's given, the chapter of the heroes of the faith, Think that the point of this chapter is to give us a list of people who are champions. They're impressive characters that we can look up to, but none that we can really live up to. These people are amazing. You know, Abraham, well, he, he's mentioned and he talked with God. Moses was called a friend of God. Gideon led an entire army in liberation of the people of Israel. How can we live up to them? If that's the thought we have in mind, it's a mistaken thought. Because the point of this passage is not to give us a group of unreachable characters, people who are so far beyond us that we can't do anything other than look at and admire them. Sure, our modern halls of fame may have that purpose. You'll see the names of Michael Jordan or Usain Bolt or other people in these halls. But the chapter 11 of Hebrews does not have that as its main point. Instead, it's a whole chapter that's dedicated to point us to where these people found the strength for their victory, for the strength for what they could do. Because what is faith? Our catechism describes it as a sure knowledge by which we accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. Why do we accept it as true? Because God has declared it to be so and has proven himself to be faithful to his promises. Hebrews 11 describes faith as the substance or being sure of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. Why are we totally sure? Because we have a God who has made promises and we can see throughout this hall of faith that he is faithful to those promises. So what do we get then when we look at the hall of faith or the heroes of the faith? We don't get men who are particularly amazing in and of themselves. Consider Abraham, for example, He lied to the pagan king Abimelech. What about Noah? He got drunk. Sarah laughed at God. Jacob had the reputation of being a deceiver. Moses lost his temper at one point and took what ought to have been glory for God's provision and attributed it to himself. David committed adultery. All of these men had sins in their lives. They had weaknesses. They were real men. And there was nothing particularly special about them. But one thing set them apart. They had one thing in common. They trusted in God. And God pulled them through. Despite everything they had done, Despite all of their sins, God kept on drawing them back to himself in repentance and in faith. Their trust in him proved to be trustworthy. It was certain. It was sure. So when we describe these men as a great cloud of witnesses, they're men who are bearing witness. Like witnesses in a courtroom, they bear witness to a God who doesn't disappoint and the witness of their lives after the fact proves this to be true. With each of them, we can see that God was at work in them, drawing them closer. What they took as certain and true, God himself also proved to be true, which in turn made God's promises more certain and more sure for each subsequent person. Kids, it's like if you're... Dad or mom promises you lunch. They're your parents, so what they promise, they'll follow through with, right? You know that they'll give you lunch because of who they are. It's 12.30 on a Sunday afternoon, and you're hungry, real hungry, for some good Dutch soup and buns. You can smell that your mom is heating it up in the kitchen, and she promises to feed you. When you believe that promise, it's not blind faith. It's faith, but it's not blind faith. It's being sure of what you hope for because you trust the person who gave you that promise. You know your parents will give you food to eat because you're their child and they love you. Now imagine for a moment that you're all sitting around the table and mom begins to scoop out food. First your older sister gets a plate, then your older brother then your younger sister, whoever happens to be closest to the bowl. Every person in your family who is fed bears witness to the fact that parents look after their children, that parents will provide lunch for their children. They'll take care of them. With each and every scoop, you're getting more and more sure that you'll be fed because each of your siblings is being taken care of too. It's not that the promise itself gets bigger over time, but you're more sure of the promise fulfilled for other people. And therefore, you're more sure of it being fulfilled for you yourself. So when the author of Hebrews tells us to be encouraged by the fact that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, he's telling us to look Uh, he's telling us that the promise is sure and that if we ever doubt it, we only need to look at the lives of our older brothers and sisters in the faith. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and many more. To see how the promise of God to be with his people and to take care of them is a real thing. Does that mean that life will suddenly be easier for us? Well, no. We recognize that. We've seen that in the lives of these different people, and we read a description of what happened to many in Hebrews 11, verse 35 and following. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they may obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. But despite all of that, they had God on their side. And God helped them through all of that. As we read in 11 verse 13, These all died in faith, not having received the immediate promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return, But they're not thinking back to the country of which they came out. They're not thinking back to where they were slaves to sin. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. He has prepared a heavenly dwelling with eternal joy and happiness into which they could come, whatever their past As long as they turn to God in repentance and faith. We're surrounded by a great cloud of people in history, not just a few here and there, but a great cloud that has run the race as well and has received their reward. And so those running. Those running are able to look back to that picture of a great cloud of those who, by the testimony that they left behind, are cheering us in the stands of that spiritual race, telling us, have faith in God. He helped us. He's trustworthy. If you do have faith in Him, you'll run the race, and you'll complete it too. The second thing that the author of Hebrews draws our attention to is the question of laying aside every weight. Now, any good racer knows that the best way to make yourself as fast as possible is to make yourself as streamlined as possible. In a day and age of spandex and lycra, everyone from runners to swimmers will have skin-tight clothes. But that wasn't the case in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you wore various layers of clothing. You'd have a tunic in the bottom, which is a layer of slightly tighter-fitting clothing. It's like a a tighter-fitting big t-shirt worn right next to your skin. That hangs down to about your knees. Jesus wore one, and we read about how the soldiers that were under the cross, they gambled over it to see which of them would be able to take it home. Over that, you'd have looser-fitting garments. You'd have a heavy, heavier outer garment that was worn over the tunic. And if you were a Jew, you'd likely have a prayer shawl that you wore as well. Something to help remind you to constantly stay in prayer. Take all of that together, and you'd actually be wearing quite a bit in the way of clothes. Keeping that in mind, when the author of Hebrews writes, let us lay aside every weight, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. He's saying something. He's comparing this race of faith to races that you'd find in the ancient Roman world. They'd follow the pattern that was handed down to them already by the Greeks. When you went to run a race, you would strip down completely naked in order to run. They didn't strip down to spandex. They stripped down to nothing. Now keep in mind that these were usually men-only events, as stripping in front of women would be considered pretty scandalous. But these men would take off everything. Nothing mattered to them but the race. Everything was a hindrance, and so they left everything at the starting line. Now compare this to your race of faith. Is there something that you've taken with you or that you've picked up along the way? Have you left everything at the starting line? It's interesting to note that the author of Hebrews gives us two things to look for as things to leave behind. Every weight that hinders and the sin that so easily ensnares. What makes this distinction? Well, there's two things to note here. The first thing is that there are good things which can hinder us in our race of faith. There are good things that can hinder us in our race of faith. These are things which are good in and of themselves, but once they become the focus of our lives, then they become a serious issue. And I feel that this is one of the biggest things that we struggle with in our churches today. I dare say, maybe even here in Owen Sound. The things that are good. But they hinder our spiritual race because they become the main focus. And I'm not talking about something like alcohol or something else along those lines. I'm I'm talking about relationships, our careers, our retirement, our possessions, our hobbies. As soon as these things become our main focus, instead of the race of faith, we've stopped running. Have you stopped running? Has your relationship and the feelings that you stir up in yourselves through it become a goal in and of itself instead of a means by which to better direct both of your lives to the pursuit of God? Have you stopped running? Has your career been an aid to provide for your families as God requires To provide for the needs of the saints, to bear witnesses to co workers, and to work to the glory of God? Or has advancement, pay raises, or your pension or retirement become the focus of your work? Have you stopped running? Have your hobbies been a chance for you to get out and enjoy God's creation? to provide a temporary stress relief to make you better able to serve your family or to sharpen your mind? Or have they become a focus that overwhelms your time off, that shuffles aside family, friends, and faith? Have you stopped running? Those good things can be the very weights which slow us down. They can be aids to us in our running the race of faith. But abused, they become barriers. Take a moment today and examine these aspects of your lives. Ask yourselves the question, have I stopped running? And of course, to that we need to add the question of sin. Sin so easily ensnares. If we need to examine ourselves regarding the good things of our lives, how much more should we examine ourselves regarding sin? in our lives. I could list many now, but for many of you, I'm sure there's at least one single thing that jumps to your mind, even right now. Even this moment. Think about it for a moment. Now take the steps, beginning with a promise, right here, right now, to repent. To turn to the Lord and to root it out. Remove the hindrances of your life and run. This brings us to the third point that the author of Hebrews marks out in this passage. He says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You'll notice here that he doesn't say just let us run or even let us run the race but let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. The people of God were flagging in their endurance. Christianity had been spreading across the Roman world at a mad pace. And for a while, for many of them, things seemed very good. Sure, the odd number of them faced opposition right from the start, from the synagogues that tried to keep Jews following the old ways instead of recognizing the fulfillment of their faith had come in Jesus Christ. But that was nothing compared to the success that many of them were having. People were coming to the faith quickly. But then things started to settle down again. And church life became normal and persecution that they faced still didn't slow down. If anything, there were more people than ever who disliked them. What were they to think of that? It's at that point that the author of Hebrews reminds the people you need to run the race with endurance. As a Christian, you're not running a 100 meter dash, it's a lifelong marathon. And that's something that people often tend to forget. They look back on the last week. The last month, the last six months, and they think, God, there's not much that seems to be going on right now. I don't see much of a change. And because of that, they get disappointed. It's a Christian life. Aren't things supposed to be happening? Aren't there supposed to be life-transforming events? Now, in some cases, there are. And some people, maybe even some of you here today, can attest to that but that's not a guarantee. For others, God often changes us by His Holy Spirit gradually, so quietly that we don't even necessarily recognize it for ourselves. So when we run a race, we're not called to look at instant results. We're not called to look at massive changes, although praise God if they do happen. No, we're called to live lives of quiet faithfulness and trust. We read in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 10 and following, we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more in brotherly love, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly towards those who are outside and that you may lack nothing. Hardly earth-shattering stuff, is it? But for many of us, that kind of quiet life Bearing witness in the way that we walk, talk, and carry out our day-to-day tasks is what God calls us to do. Not earth-shattering, but quiet, faithful, Christ-like, enduring service of God. Run as if you're running for the long haul. So where do we find the strength for that? In the runner's world, there's an interesting experience that happens to people who run for long periods of time. And some of you long-distance runners may have experienced that. It's the runner's high. It's what happens when you run after a long period of time, and you've pushed through the pain of running. You've reached the end of your rope, and suddenly you feel a second wind. There's a rush of endorphins that fills your body and a sensation of pleasure as you're running. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't say that I've found this place, which is why I'm not necessarily much of a runner, but it's what I'm told. Yet, that's not what you run for, is it? When you're training for, and when you're actually running a race, you're not running for the sake of a runner's high. You're running for the end goal. Your eyes are fixed on the finish line and on the prize. Now, this is where many people go astray. They think we're running for this emotional high, for this religious emotional high, this constant and enduring, intense sense of closeness with God at every moment, every second of our lives. Now, there are times in our lives when we will feel an emotional high, we'll feel that real closeness with God. But for most of us, there will also be times when we don't. And those times will just be running the regular race that's marked out for us. Where do we look in these times? In Revelation 2, John writes about the church of Ephesus who had experienced this very same long run. He writes, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience and labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. This is high praise. This is a church that's strong in doctrine. But he goes on. Nevertheless, this I have against you. That you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. It's easy for our love to grow cold, for that emotional high to wear off or be ever elusive. But don't let that be a reason to take your eyes off of your first love. You're settling in for the long haul here. Keep your eye on the prize, eternity with Jesus Christ. Look to the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God and looked to him in love. Like the man who 60 years after his wedding day still has eyes only for his wife and no other woman can distract. Have eyes only for Christ. Fix your eyes on him. We may face hostility or temptation, and that can tempt us to despair. But fix your eyes on him. As the author to the Hebrews writes, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. It was him who faced hostility for us. We're called to look to him in those times when we're feeling that weight and to recognize that despite all of that, he, for the joy that was set before him, the joy of spending eternity with his chosen people, endured the cross, despising its shame. He endured hostility and even the shame of the cross that he might finish first and blaze the trail for his people. So how much more should we, even in the face of suffering and hardship, having found our identity in Christ and following the trail that he's already blazed for us, fix our eyes on him, the author of our faith, the finisher of the race. Because we have in him the prize of sitting down in the presence of God, We have received that. We have that as a sure confidence that lies ahead of us once we cross that finish line because of Jesus Christ. So keep your eye on that prize as you run. Christ, who is not only the prize, but the one who gives us the strength to run. Keep your eyes fixed on him and run, run without hindrance, run with endurance, run the race marked out for you. Amen.